Hi there. Thank you for choosing to listen to this sermon. We pray that God would use this as an added resource to benefit you in conjunction with you belonging to a local church near you. This sermon was preached at Central Baptist Church, Pretoria. 130 years of believers loving God, caring for one another, and impacting the world. Many, many years ago, when liberation theology had taken hold of the church in Germany, there was the advent of the Second World War. And at a theological college where there was no longer any confidence in the Bible, uh, it was seen merely to be a collection of mythical writings, and the world was in a state of absolute despair and disaster, the students came to their professor. His name was Karl Barth. And they said to him, Professor, what does God have to say in this situation? We don't know. Karl Barth went away and he turned from his liberalism back to the Bible. He didn't go all the way, but he recognized that we need to have something. We need to have the confidence of the Word of God. And so, folks, this morning we turn to the Word of God. What is it that God has to say? And so do turn with me to Matthew chapter 5 and uh, these Beatitudes, this uh, sermon that Jesus teaches known as the Sermon on the Mount. Seeing the crowds, he went up onto the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and he taught them saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Father, thank you that you have not left us in the dark, that we can, Lord, day by day, week by week, year by year, be informed from your revelation to us. And so thank you for the Bible. We thank you for all of the Old Testament and all of the New Testament. Thank you for this sermon that we can, uh, Lord, examine, that we can understand and pray that we understand it in that which you taught to your disciples, to the people on that day. And Lord, we are those and want to again acknowledge a dependence on your spirit, asking that you, Lord, do your work among us as you lead us, we ask in righteousness, in Jesus' name. Amen. I think most of us here this morning would have been exposed or had some exposure to an organization called the Gift of the Givers. Do you know them? Well, some years ago, I was troubled in trying to understand how the work of an organization like the Gift of the Givers fits into this fifth beatitude. The beatitude, and I'll read it again, the one we're considering is, Blessed are the merciful. They are merciful. 
Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So if we take this beatitude, this verse, at face value, and we take it in isolation from the rest of Scripture, how the gift of the givers respond and what they do to help people in desperate need would earn them the reward of receiving mercy. That makes sense. I think the same confusion, it's a confusion, it can be a confusion, confronts us when we see what philanthropists do. People who've got lots of money and they give lots of money to other people in in need. And I I just checked out uh, this past year, uh, Bill Gates gave away $9 billion to help needy people. So one would think, showing mercy, he, gift of the givers, ought to be earning mercy from God. And so how do we resolve that dilemma? And I want to put my conclusion up front this morning. My conclusion is that this verse, this beatitude, teaches us that all Christians ought to show mercy, but not all who show mercy are Christians. Okay, maybe I should say that again. All Christians, those who believe, those who are genuine believers, ought to show mercy, but not all who show mercy are necessarily Christians. And I'm going to unpack that. Uh, I'm going to try and unpack that this morning. Why, why, why is that conclusion true? How do we understand, and it's, it's not just the gift of the givers, it's not just Bill Gates, it, it, it's your neighbor, your, your neighbor that is an unbeliever that you think is really a, a nice person. They're nice people. How do we understand that the fact that at times, and in some measure, we see acts of mercy, we see good behavior in people from other faiths, and even often evident in atheists. How do you understand that? Well, it is because all men and women on this earth, down through the ages to the end of the age, even in our fallen state, are to some extent image bearers. You're an image bearer. As creatures made in the image of God, there will be some evidence, and I'm going to use a word that old theologians used to use, there's some evidence of what are called the communicable attributes of God that show through the cracks of the sinful nature. That's what happens. Uh, An atheist, an, an unbeliever, people of other cults or even faiths uh, are still people made in the image of God and in their fallen nature, something of these communicable attributes show through. We need to be sure that there is no person on this earth everywhere present. We are finite creatures. There is no person on this earth that is all-powerful. Only God is all-powerful. There is no person on this earth that is sovereign. Uh, Only God is sovereign. These are attributes, these are characteristics of God that we call incommunicable attributes. God does not share those with us. But even though man is fallen and the image of God in man is defective, some of the shared attributes 
Why do you think you're able to love your spouse? Why do you think you're able to, to be in a relationship with someone? It is because God has created you with that as an image bearer with the capacity to experience and to express some of these communicable attributes. Mercy is another one. That's why I raised it here this morning. Justice. These things will be seen in people in some measure, regardless of ethnic identity and regardless of creed. So there is something different in the life of a believer that fits, that makes us fit into this category of being a recipient of mercy and being blessed. And so I want to consider in the first place this morning the motive of mercy. Why do gift of the givers do what they do? Have you thought about that? Well, they are adhering to the core beliefs and the practices of Islam. These core beliefs are known as five pillars. There are five pillars that Islam stands on, and, and each pillar focuses on doing. They are acts of righteousness that they need to be involved in, and so the activity has got nothing to do with the internal change of heart. So when Eugene and I were up in Tunisia, and we were walking along from the place, we were staying up to H&A's house. Uh, quite a few times the imam would be calling people to pray. And I found it fascinating to see men, men uh, in their designer Adidas tackies and their designer t-shirts, uh, running down the road with their overcoat, I don't know what you call that thing, and they're busy putting it on so that they can get to the prayer place to do, to do what is required of them to do. So by observing the five pillars, Muslims believe they earn their way into heaven. In other words, they practice salvation by works. Let me read uh, the description of this third pillar. It's called uh, zakat or alms. In accordance with Islamic law, Muslims donate a fixed portion of their income to community members in need. Many rulers and wealthy Muslims build mosques, drinking fountains, hospitals, schools, and other institutions like gift of the givers, both as a religious duty, and listen to this, and to secure the blessings associated with charity. Well, Jesus made a radical distinction between heart condition, internal condition, and just the work of the hands. He was concerned in his ministry, and we see this throughout not only the Gospels, but also the remaining New Testament. He was concerned that doing must follow being. What you do must be an outcome of who you are. Let me give you an example. Matthew chapter 23 verse 15. Jesus speaking to the religious uh, elite of the day. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, that's a convert, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. 
So what do we say? Well, we could say what they were doing was a good thing, but for the wrong reasons. Motive, motive. Their motives were from hard hearts. The motives were directed in exalting themselves, not about glorifying God, and therefore nullifying, cancelling what they do. And so Jesus here in his Beatitudes, he's not holding a map in front of us, he's holding a mirror. Now what does a map do? A map shows us direction. That's not the purpose of these verses. Instead, he's holding up a mirror. It's a mirror that we must look into. We this morning, me, we need to look into this and see there's a profile. There's an engraved profile as we look into this mirror and to see, well, I'm a believer. I claim to be a believer. Do I fit that profile? So Jesus, in this sermon, is describing a Christian. This is what you ought to look like in some measure. It's a profile. It's a picture of the Christian and the character of a Christian in the process of being more and more transformed into the likeness of Jesus. And so I'm going to get to some application now, but a Christian is something before he or she does anything worthwhile. The nature of salvation is to address a hard heart, to replace it with the heart of flesh. And so we need to see, we need to be Christians before we can behave like Christians. Stupid illustration, maybe boys and girls can take note of this. An apple tree will produce apples. And that's so? Hanging apples on a thorn tree does not make the thorn tree an apple tree. It's logic. Before conversion, the sinner is compared, and you found these verses in the Old Testament. Did you know that a sinner, uh, more like a thorn tree, uh, compared uh, in, in, to a wolf for his savageness, or a lion for his fierceness in Isaiah chapter 11, or to a bee for his sting, uh, Psalm 118, or, or to an adder or snake for its poison, Psalm 143. Let me quote Thomas Watson here. The unbeliever, before we are converted, by nature we do not send forth oil, but poison. Not the oil of mercifulness, but the poison of maliciousness. We are as Christians not like that. We are recipients of God's mercy. New creatures in Christ, and our doing, our doing, our behavior is different. Why? Again, the Apostle Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live, I live in the flesh. I live by the, uh, I live by the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Because it's a mirror, the beatitude is a package deal. All of the Beatitudes are important and true. And so the believer, the poor of spirit, as I started off in the series, is the key. I have nothing. The recognition before God, I am nothing. I can do nothing to gain favor. I cannot earn the favor of God. I'm a spiritual pauper. I'm one who knows my position before God, mourning over my sin that grieves Him. And apart from His grace, drives a wedge between us. 
leaving me meek. Number three, before God and others, stripped of pride. No arrogance strutting around as independent and self-sufficient. But looking to Jesus. Came to save me from my sin. So the true Christian is someone having received mercy. That's the difference. Having received mercy, now having the God-given capacity to show mercy as a display of grace and not as a feather in his or her cap. Let me go to my second point, and I want to now move on to the meaning of mercy. Since mercy is a communicable attribute of God, surely there's no better place to look than to say, well, how is God merciful? Because then we know what mercy is, is like. Look at the mercy of God. And I'm just picked up on two verses. I see Isaac picked up on the same one from Lamentations. And I called it the super generous nature of the mercy of God. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. That's what He gives to you. Today, tomorrow, and he keeps giving it again and again. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Do you see the abundant, super generous nature of the mercy of God? Another well-known passage is in Deuteronomy, where Moses asks to see the glory of God. God gives him a glimpse of himself. Just a glimpse. Exodus chapter 34 records for us, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But it doesn't stop there. Notice the nature of God. But who will by no means clear the guilty, those who remain under condemnation and remain in rebellion toward God, Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So, so mercy, and, and, and we need to recognize this, does not mean turning a blind eye to sin. That we should be easygoing toward sin. The immense generosity of mercy, the mercy of God, is not isolated from justice and holiness and righteousness and even discipline. The mercy of God, what is it? He sees the misery, and there is misery in this world, of the rebelliousness of mankind floundering under condemnation in sin. God sees that, and He shows compassion. And how does He do it? He does so with a loving plan, a desire to relieve the suffering. Now, Isaac uh, tagged on the chorus of a song that I learned as a young person. I don't know how many of the older people know this song, but I think it puts in words uh, the extent of this plan and desire to relieve the suffering of sinful people. Maybe older folk would know it. Oh, the love that drew salvation's plan. Oh, the grace that brought it down to man. Oh, the mighty gulf that God did span at Calvary. Mercy there was great, and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied to me. There my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary. If 
folk, that's, that's where we need to be looking if we want to understand the mercy of God. So mercy must be seen as pity plus action. Jesus is the supreme example where we see love and justice and mercy expressed on the cross. His mercy deals with the sinful condition of us people. But he does not ignore or overlook it. Justice and mercy are not contradictory, but meet in the person of Jesus. Which brings me to my third point, which is really the application. I've called it mercy in motion. What does it look like? What should it look like in, in my life and, and your life as a believer? And, and, and I know already in my thinking before I came to study, I already had ideas. And, and, and normally when we, when we mention the word mercy, we're thinking about helping just the poor and the needy. We have a mercy ministry. We used to feed uh, homeless people at the Arcadia campus. But as I studied more and more in preparation this week, I came to see for us as Christians, there's a lot more to mercy in motion. And there are two areas I'm going to tackle, and there are probably more. And the first is mercy to the eternal souls of people. Mercy to the eternal souls of people. Your soul, the soul of a person, is the most precious thing. Let's not forget that. Listen to Watson, Thomas Watson, this old Puritan. He's, he describes the soul. He said, it is a vessel of honor. It is a bud of eternity. It is a sparkle lit by the breath of God. It is a rich diamond Set in a ring of clay. Your soul, the soul, has the redeeming work of Jesus to save it. To redeem it, the image of God to beautify it. And so the soul mercy must be carried out to others. And there are a couple of areas I want to touch on. Soul mercy is having concern for the unconverted. You know, someone who is uh, not a believer, uh, someone who has not understood the forgiveness and grace of God in Jesus, somebody who has not seen the good news, well, there ought to be from you, from me, toward those that we know, a concern. Listen again now to another author, uh, Church Father Augustine. He says, if I weep... For that body from the soul, the, the, for, for that body from the soul has departed. And, and we do weep for my wife that is gone. Then he goes on. How should I weep for that soul from which God has departed? That's a challenge. The gospel is good news. And we ought to show mercy, soul mercy to sinners who are perishing. We ought to believe the scriptures that tell us the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Secondly, soul mercy is having concern for the backslidden, people who just drift away. We are often hesitant to speak and confront the backslidden. I found something different in the ministry of the Apostle Paul, where he shows it's not cruel when we see a person go into sin and not just leave them alone. 
And I quote from Titus chapter 1 verse 12. And Paul writing to Titus, he says, One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, has said, now he's describing them, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply. Why? That they may be sound in faith. Again, Thomas Watson over here, and we have doctors among us this morning. The surgeon cuts and lances the flesh, but it is in order to cure. They are healing wounds. So by cutting, uh, cutting reproof, when we lance men's consciences and let them out, when we let out the blood of sin, we exercise spiritual surgery. And then, folk, I said I'm going to address my response to our current situation. Soul mercy is having a concern to be forgiving. Forgiving those who hurt us, forgiving those who offend us. And we know, you know, in the course of your life, my own experience over many years in living and in ministry, the sharp knife of offense cuts deep. It cuts deep. Forgiving must be a concern for me and you in all circumstances, past, present, and future. So today we have a hurting congregation. I think we must be honest. Many of you feel disappointed. Many of you feel offended and hurt. Today we have a hurting family, also disappointed and feeling offended. Today we have a hurting eldership, and I want you to pray for the elders, who are feeling disappointed and weary and offended. Folk, today we have hurting pastors, also. I have offended no doubt, but I've also been offended. And in fact, at this point, I want to ask you as a congregation to forgive me. I'm sure I've failed. I have failed in leading in this particular situation. My point is, we all feel in this particular instance, but there are other instances where we are disappointed, where we fail God in offending, even if it's a perception, or being offended. It's the nature of relationships, in marriages, in friendships. We are different people. We have different perspectives. We are finite. We are sinful. We are still being sanctified. And so in community, unless you're living in isolation on your own, you will never offend or be offended. Isn't that true? Being offended. That sharp knife of offense cuts deep. Some months ago, in my office, there was an elder and a deacon with me with a visitor to our church who put his finger in my face and he said to me, I'm praying for God's judgment on your life. We get hurt. 
I was sitting with a friend of mine and his wife. They were moving from Germiston Baptist to the UK to say goodbye to them. And his wife, Sue, uh, Peter's wife, said to me, ministry is brutal. It's tough at times. It's wonderful at times. But my point is this. What do we do? What will we do? Do we become bitter? Do we become all twisted? And do we become resentful? And do we show antagonism? And and do we show malice and, and revenge? No. No. The forgiven of God can do no other than show forgiveness to the offenders. Jesus shows us in the parable of the two debtors that an inability to forgive, and this is a challenge, an inability to forgive is an indication of a refusal to, for, to, to receive forgiveness. Listen to what Jesus says. Matthew chapter 18. His master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debts. So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. And so, folk, I ask for forgiveness this morning. I'm sorry. I really am sorry. 31 years of ministry, I've never gone through such an experience. Have I failed? I've failed. Forgive me, please. Which leads me to my next point. Soul mercy is having a concern to be on our knees. Matthew chapter 9, verse 38. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. What's he saying? That is praying for God to raise up gospel workers to do ministry across the world. This difficult job. Also Colossians chapter 4 verse 3. At the same time pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word. To declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I'm in prison. What's that? Praying for the ministry that is done. That hearts would be open. That people would receive the good news. That they would not simply be external. Hanging apples on a thorn tree. And then my, one of my favorite verses in ministry is the prayer that John prays. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you, that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. And so soul mercy is to be on our knees praying for the comprehensive well-being of each other. And so that's my first uh, application, the Uh, Mercy to the eternal souls of people. Number two, mercy to the temporal needs of people. The commands of God right from the beginning in the Old Testament are not to ignore, but to have pity and to take action toward relieving the desperate situation of people in need. Give me some examples. Deuteronomy 15. If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, You shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother. But you shall open your hand to him. Lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Those who receive mercy, show mercy. There's many other scriptures. One other from the book of Leviticus, 
When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. Left for those who have nothing. So that they can come and find something to fill their stomachs. It's not just the Old Testament, but even the New Testament. Uh, merciful relieving action. In the gospel community, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty or to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Again, Thomas Watson, I quote him, he says, What benefit is there of gold while it is emboweled and locked up in a mine? In other words, under the earth. What is, and, and, and what is it better to have a great estate if it is so hoarded and cloistered up as never to see the light? We must show mercy to those in need. Those who have been thrust sometimes under the dark clouds of providence, where circumstances are desperate. James chapter 1 verse 27, religion that is pure and undefiled. Uh, before God the Father is this, to visit orphan and widows in their affliction. My conclusion is my last point. I've called it a mercy map. Works of mercy must be free. What do I mean by that? We must avoid the danger and temptation to use charity as a means to manipulate people or to hold them captive as they become indebted to the giver. That's why I'm of the opinion that anonymous giving is a good idea. Charity must flow like spring water. The heart must be the spring, the hand, the pipe, and the poor, the cistern. Watson. Number two, works of mercy are to be done in humility. There must not be, there cannot be ostentation, self-aggrandizement, like the Pharisee announcing to God all he could, uh, all, all he, uh, and to all who could hear what he had done and doing so in self-congratulations. Again, Thomas Watson says, in all of our hearts danger lurks. The worm breeds in the fairest fruit. The moth in the finest cloth. Pride will be creeping into our best things. Beware of the dead fly in the box of ointment. Number three. Works of mercy are to be done with thankfulness. You see, those that can give should be more thankful for what they have, not what they don't have. Thankful for what God has given us, that we are in a position to give and not need to be a recipient. Thank you, God, for what you've given me. To have material comfort, thank you for, being, for giving me this privilege of being a new creation. Gratitude to God. And then my last comment Works of mercy are to be done in Christ and for Christ. And I'll just close with a comment from Watson again. He says, do all for Christ, that is for his sake, that you may testify your love to him, as Mary did out of love, bringing her ointments and sweet spices to anoint Christ's dead body. So out of love to Christ, bring your ointments and anoint his living body. 
that is his saints and members. Blessed are the merciful, they shall receive mercy. Indeed, Lord, your mercies are great. Pray that your spirit would impress that upon us today, leaving out today as those who not only are recipients, but generous sharers of this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon. Find out more about Central Baptist Church at www.central.org.za.